out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Esau and this is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another exciting chapter in the ever-expanding world that is indie pop and beyond. This week's special guest is going to be Momus, who I spoke to, actually it was ages and ages ago, um, but I have got a backlog, so that was A, tricky, and B, also, this was a recording that I did. Um, he was in a faraway country with a time difference of five and a half hours, I know five and a half hours and uh, there was occasions on this interview where the quality just drops out a bit and I probably sound a bit desperate but anyway what's new so I thought it still made me laugh listening to this so I thought in this in these uh, interesting times anything that makes you laugh always uh, is a good thing so I thought we would uh, well I would give it a go and just put it out there because frankly this guy is a creative genius and this is going to be before any more chat a song that you like, I like. Who doesn't like this one? This is Lucky Like Saint Sebastian. Once upon a time there was a man called Saul who persecuted Christians until he saw the work was bearing fruit for the Christians. So the man changed his opinions and his Christian name to Paul And he wrote important chapters in the Bible But the blood on his writing hand reeked to high heaven And Paul resolved to die So he wrote to friends in Rome, a senator who owed him a favor Asking for an executioner So Paul could make his exit as a martyr The senator sent this answer he said, should you be so lucky like Saint Sebastian Offering the egg to the aspirin Swooning as they should be arrows through your narrow chest Stripping naked in the circus maximus With a martyr-eating lioness Bartering with flesh for a little pain Scenes like this give sadomasochism a bad name up hope when he saw she wouldn't touch him with a barge pole. He spent his whole life in the inferno. He composed in 34 cantos. Oh, Dante, though I'm anti such romantic speculation. I'm your hypocrite and leader in the same situation. I'm your double. Oh, me, I'm your brother in pain. But Allegheny, if you listen, there's a difference between your Beatrice and my Paula. She's anonymous and now a waitress It's comic but not divine The tragedy is no one's dying Should I be so lucky like Saint Sebastian Going out with a bang just here Whimpering with joy As Mr. Death receives his blue-eyed boy Surrender unto Caesar or to God It makes no odds just one thing the martyr wants to say He says, tell me, 
Mrs. Lincoln Did you enjoy the play? Indeed, Chartbound Sounds, that was Momus with a track called Lucky Like St. Sebastian that came, um, was the opening song on the album Circus Maximus that came out in 1986, still sounding fresh and funky and exciting 33 years later. Anyway, this is David Esau, this is the C86 show and this week's special guest is going to be Momus, who I spoke to months ago. Um... He probably can't remember, actually. But, um, yes, um, I've told you why I haven't put it out recently. Um, because there was a certain issue with the quality of the recording, not the quality of the chat, let me assure you. The guy is a walking and talking genius. Um, so I thought, look, let's just put it out there and make it happen. But um, before we have the first part of the interview, we will have another track. But before that, um, being of a certain age, I like doing the admin. You can contact me on, on Facebook or Twitter. It is... Um, at C86show, um, and I think also on Instagram. Check me out with my social media platforms. Mm-hmm-hmm. Um, and also, just as a sort of a little bit um, to add to that, um, just make it positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Go and get your therapist uh, or, or book in for a therapist uh, on Monday morning for a double session about negativity. Indeed. Anyway, so that's that. Oh, yes. And also, I've done all these shows have been archived and I've been doing them for two and a half years. So you can check them out on Podbean, um, Spotify, iTunes and the one and only Mixcloud. Just go to at C86show. It's nearly two and a half years, three years of exciting chat. But anyway, I think we're going to have one more song. I think. The tension is mailed in. And then the first part of the interview. This is going to be another one of your favourites. This is I Want You, But I Don't Need You. You can sing along whenever you want. I like you. And I'd like you to like me to like you. But I don't need you. Don't need you to want me to like you. Because if you didn't like me I would still like you, you see La 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 I lick you I like you to like me to lick you But I don't need you Don't need you to like me to lick you your pleasure turns into pain I would still look for my personal gain La 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 I fuck you And I love you to love me to fuck you But I don't fucking need you Don't need you to need me to fuck you If you need me to need you to fuck That fucks everything up La 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 I want you And I want you to want me to want you But I don't need you Don't need you to need me to need you 
it's just me So take me or leave me But please don't need me Don't need me to need you to need me Cause we're here one minute The next we're dead So love me and leave me But try not to need me enough sir. That was Momus with a track called I Want You, But I Don't Need You. That came from their album Ping Pong. And um, also, just for those who are sort of making notes, and hopefully you are, um, a lot of his material has been reissued, repackaged on the Cherry Red record label. Um, And I know they did an anthology recently, um, which covered the years 1986 to 2016. And also, it was last year they brought out three Momus albums, including... Hippopotamomus, Voyager and Time Lord, all from his early 90s work, just before Britpop. He was just taking on grunge single-handedly. Anyway, enough babbling. This is going to be the first part of my interview with Momus, where um, I'd asked about those early years and his early journey into music, creativity and all that exciting stuff. It was a great question. Um, I pat myself on the back and this was his reply. Momus, tell us about those early years. I am waiting. 
I got very excited because Joseph K split up and uh, I formed a band with the ex-members of Joseph K and we signed to 4AD and made a sort of story album on 4AD, a concept album about a fascist dictator. And then I moved to London after I, I that wasn't really going anywhere. So I, I finished uh, the band and went back to finish my English degree, um, came to London in the mid 80s. And, uh, and and reinvented myself as moments basically in London, uh, initially signing to Mike Always Little, then signing to Creation, uh, and then yeah, back to Cherry Red. You know, various indie labels that uh, have sustained me ever since. Yeah. So just, um, you know, when you were sort of growing up, because obviously, you know, everyone has their sort of musical influences or artistic influences. What what were the um, kind of people you were either listening to or, or sort of artists you might have been looking at to uh, sort of form form those creative moments in your childhood? I guess in the 60s, it was the Beatles pretty much exclusively, um, mostly uh, Revolver and Abbey albums. And then I discovered T-Rex in the early 70s, like a lot of other people, and I uh, was a huge fan of Mark Bowler. Then it was David Bowie um, from 72 onwards. And basically, I just stuck with David Bowie and used him as a kind of internet before the internet. He was a kind of cultural index because he kept dropping names. He was pretentious enough to be a great teacher. So he would talk about Burroughs and Genet and all these characters or Iggy Pop or people like that, you know, and you'd, you'd sort of, uh, as a loyal Bowie fan, you'd have to search them and uh, read all the books and things. And um, so that was... You know, up until the end of the 70s, that was pretty much, uh, he was my cultural barometer. Then I basically, you know, sort of had a cultural explosion, discovered lots of writers and artists um, and, and realized that, uh, you know, there was more to cultural life than just David Bowie. And, uh, yeah, I kind of, uh, I wanted to, to do a, a, continue doing what he'd done in, in the sense of becoming a kind of one-man um kind of Weltanschauung, a vision of the world, you know, kind of uh, a way of um, uh, indexing all the culture that had fascinated me and sort of making versions of, you know, there are songs of mine which are just simply trying to funnel the plays of Frank Wedekind into a song, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of, I could go through every single one of my songs and say, actually, this comes from X and that bit comes from Y. And I was just trying to, you know, put a, a bit of... Um, Balinese music next to a, a short story by Mishima, you know, whatever, this kind of thing. It's all it's all got a source somewhere. It's all kind of shoplifted. Yes. Well, actually, it's interesting because I had exactly the same experience with David Bowie. Everything he mentioned, I, would, I too also had to go out and uh, try and locate it. And also, I suppose, try and either like it or at least understand it. And um, it was good. It was fascinating and an interesting one. So when you got to university, was that sort of uh, an interesting period of your life? You know, because often the, those are the years when you leave home, you meet lots of other people and you meet lecturers who give you sort of inspiration yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the year 1979 was a sort of explosion year. And I actually recently, actually just after Bowie died, I kind of had this strange reaction where I thought, God, I've so much identified uh, with with him, feeling that I was kind of David Bowie. And when he died, I, I had to really discover who I really was. And I went back to my early diaries, especially, uh, and actually published PDFs of them on, on my website, imamas.com. So if you scan down the left-hand column, you can find this section called diaries. And I published the diaries from 79 till 81, which was really an amazingly 
sensitive time for me. You know, I, I start off as fairly kind of normal Scottish teenager, and then I'm, I'm just encountering all this culture which changes me. It's writers, it's, it's a new wave music, it's, you know, people like Wire and The Passage and all these uh, um, new wave groups. And uh, a political, you know, revelation as well, because I bring very heavily to the left. So to university, I discover uh, the Frankfurt School and Adorno and Benjamin and all these people. And it's a, it's really incredible. You know, I think the year 1979 is an, an incredibly important time for me when I'm 19. And I kind of feel like I'm still, I'm still culturally 19. I'm still like a 19-year-old in 1979. Probably very different from 19-year-olds now. Yes. Oh, you're slightly breaking up, but it's not too bad. Because obviously that was a period when you had the sort of the punk, the punk period had sort of happened for quite a few years. And so by then, obviously, punk rock, as with most scenes, get kind of quite, um, I don't know, diluted from the sort of 60s kind of culture to the, um, especially the glam period where suddenly you had Gary Glitter and, and the suite after people like David Bowie and I suppose, you know, Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. So it's kind of interesting that 79 was that post-punk period when you mentioned Wire, because I remember the first time I heard I Am The Fly on John Peel and thinking, God, that's really quite an odd song, you know, that I don't hear that on top of the pops. Yeah, I was hugely into Wire, uh, but also into magazine. I think really I, I feel this special affinity with Howard DeVoto's writing, and I just still think to, to this day that he is and was an amazing lyric writer. And uh, it wasn't so much, I mean, you mentioned, you know, encounters with making new friends at university and being led by tutors and all the rest of it. But I didn't really feel that. I didn't meet, the, the people that made the biggest impression on me at university were actually art students at Gray's School of Art. And I fell in with a bunch of people, you know, who were interested in painting and making films and things like that. And I was, I had this intense jealousy of people at art school, uh, not being having, because I, I, I'd really wanted to go to art school, but my family had not really thought that was a respectable thing to study. So uh, I was going to go to London, go to the central school, maybe do painting or graphic design or even industrial design, something like that. Then I, I did literature, which is much more what we've, what we've all done in, in my family. Am yeah. I still coherent? Yeah, yeah, you are still coherent. Because I realised, you know, after speaking to... To, to Lawrence um, in Felt and various um, then other carnations. He also had a very prolific output, which I noticed as well, was when you started releasing albums, you really didn't stop, did you? Because he said that 80s, you know, all he could remember when I mentioned about the social and political times, he just said, well, he was just too busy because he did t- 10 albums in 10 years with um, Felt. So you were sort of almost on the same trajectory here, weren't you, apart from this went into the 90s? Yeah, well, you know, with Bowie, what was so great was that he made it one hour a year, pretty much on average. And, and that was your way to remember. And still to this day, you know, I can see any picture of David Bowie and know exactly which year it was taken in because of what his hair is doing, because of which, you know, whether he's wearing kickers or whatever. You know, his actions are, are very, very um, uh, fixed in a particular year. And I sort of did that with my own records as well. So now if I need to remember what I was doing in 1986 or, you know, 1995, I just have to think of the album I made that year. And that really kind of in- encapsulates and encodes all my fascinations. But l- with Lawrence, yeah, I, I think Lawrence was very much uh, a similar type of person to me. And that, 
and, and our paths did cross, especially in the early 90s, because I lived with his girlfriend. His girlfriend was my flatmate, and he'd come around and watch the soap operas and eat spaghetti on our sofa. And, and uh, he, just when he was sort of inventing denim, he'd just come back from New York. And uh, so we got pretty close then, actually. It's funny, because when people ask me to tell Lawrence stories, I, have, I just tell the, the ones that everybody knows as if I didn't know Lawrence. But I could, I, I suddenly occurred to me, I know all these incredibly personal, intimate things about him. I don't know if he'd be happy with me telling them. Though. They're kind of quite, uh, quite strange things which I heard through his girlfriend. <laughs> Yes, well, I thought they'd probably make good radio, but yes, you never know, do you? Because obviously, you know, you, you're sort of being so prolific, you know, you have once or twice kind of got yourself a little bit into kind of hot water with various other people, haven't you? From being too prolific? No, not being prolific, but some of the content, you know, you, you've been sued by a couple of people, haven't you? Which is obviously what well, that probably goes with being an artist sometimes when you sort of, um, I don't know, push the boundaries. Yeah, you kind of assume that people have a sense of humor about themselves and, and you're sadly proved wrong <laughs> from time to time. And that's going to be the first part of my interview with Momus. Don't you worry, we've still got lots more of that. Um, but I'll leave you with that little cliffhanger. I'm going to play another track and then we'll have some more chat. But this is going to be um, a track taken from the album Voyager and this is Virtual Reality. When I dream
And that's another track by Momus, and that was a tra um, titled Virtual Reality. Hello, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. This is the second part of my interview with Momus, where I'd been asking how he was um, had coped with the uh, legality of life and also the legal system of um, all that kind of groovy stuff. And this was his reply. Momus, it takes a lot to cope with those moments in life. I suppose it all happened, you know, behind closed doors. I wasn't really present at legal meetings or anything. I, I was present at one of the, the Wendy Carlos legal meetings with some fancy Fifth Avenue lawyers. Basically, you know, as soon as lawyers get involved, it's, things are going to cost a lot of money. That's my main concern. I mean, I've, I've also been involved with lawyers in a positive sense, people who would negotiate better deals for you and, and would just um, would... Uh, would be paying themselves as a, a part of the, your, the cut that you gave them. But uh, yeah, I, I, now especially, I don't have anything to do. You know, I might get legal strikes on YouTube uh, from my, for my own songs. You know, my, my own videos, which I make for my own songs, get flagged up as copyright infringements of my own copyright. It's really pr pretty ridiculous. They don't seem to realize that I am. Or, you know, a, a company called The Orchard actually owns my um, songs after they're published. So I... I sort of have to uh, run, I have to run ads on my own YouTube videos for my own songs. It's ridiculous. <laughs> That's a classic. Because obviously, you know, because my, with, and I haven't done this sort of show for quite a few, well, nearly 18 months, I realised that most artists do sort of um, kind of run out of steam after about five years, and especially if they've been in a band because there's, there's issues with each other which they didn't realise was going to happen when they started, and especially in your late teens and early 20s. And there was the sort of the common story, which is kind of, you know, the first single, then a bit of John Peel, then the album, then the tour, and then it was then everything would just go wrong, you know, the, the sort of second album. If anybody ever toured America, that was also a disaster. But you've managed to keep going and, and sort of fighting through all this, which is quite amazing. Amazing. I think it's sustained failure. I sort of redefine success as a kind of sustained failure. Um, but, but actually, there's a funny Pete Frame, a, a fake Pete Frame uh, diagram of the history of rock, which people have been circulating since the, the enemy has uh, decided to close down. A lot of people posted this on Twitter. This thing shows, um, you know, ridiculous parts of the history of rock along the right-hand side. Got a moment to say. Uh, incarnations in which I never collaborate. I never collaborate with anybody except Joe Stromer comes up to moment six and says, do you want to collaborate? And I say, piss off you, toothless old uh, crone or something. And then, um, so in a way, that's a, a joke, but it's also true that, it, as you say, I was never a band, that I, so I could never really split up. Um, I, I never really had peel sessions or any of the the big moments where you are catapulted to success. And so I've never really had a sense of... Um, of diminishing, of coming down from highs, um, or failing. You know, I mean, in a way, it's it's a, a success for me just to be able to keep making records and and um, coming up to the the dangerous quote where where musicians always say we just do it to please ourselves, and if anyone else likes it, it's a bonus. But it is kind of like that. Yes, I mean. The other, the other aspect to, to all this kind of the world is, is I suppose, what most people don't realise when they start is kind of getting the management and also the publishing rights and sort of owning your own music and sort of making sure you understand all the, uh, the intricacies of that. How did you manage yourself with that um, interesting and sometimes murky world? Um, well, I did use lawyers. I used 
fairly heavy showbiz lawyers, especially around about the time I signed to Creation. And um, that was usually a requirement in the contracts that you were. I mean, actually, when I first signed to Creation, there were no contracts, but uh, they got uh, more professional through the, the seven years I was with creation yeah i mean insofar as record labels required you to work with lawyers i did um and they helped me i have to say but um mostly i i prefer to operate in a sort of cottage industry way and um, i think the music industry malcolm mclaren was always very good at pointing this out the music industry is a kind of branch of organized crime it's always had its roots in illegitimacy and and the, the underworld you know and that's um kind of healthy Yes. Well, I also remember there was a fantastic quote by Hunter S. Thompson, which I won't be able to remember, but he was just talking about sort of all the seediness and he, and at the end of the punchline, it was a bit like, and then there's all, and then there's all the bad side as well, which I'll have to sort of find the quote from. But yes, it is. It's probably one of those industries that if you're not prepared for it to be very murky and find in probably some of the dodgiest characters, you're probably in the wrong career, really. Yeah, definitely. And what would you just say to, you know, just as a sort of 18-year-old self who was starting out in the, the world of um, music? Um, gosh, well, it's so different now. I think different people are probably attracted to it. I think it's probably a very conservative uh, career option now. I think uh, once upon a time, it was a rebellious and creative thing to do. I, I think probably interesting people who would have gone into music in 1980 uh are now going into totally different things, maybe, you know, comedy or vlogging or whatever. Oh, are you still there? Yeah. All oh, right, sorry, you almost, uh, yes, I, yes, it, it is a completely different, I think most people, but I'm sure this is what happens with every industry, everybody always looks back and go, God, I would not know what, what, what the scene was like would be like now if I was starting and it was probably better than they imagined because because a lot of people I've interviewed also started music because there was very little else on in the early 80s you know there was that sort of there was a lot of unemployment there was a kind of the political scene was quite sort of um extreme on both left and right and there wasn't much in between and a lot of people were just going in onto the youth enterprise allowance scheme for a year and sort of putting down being a musician or an artist so did you were you also sort of politically motivated during that time around about 1980 i mean when thatcher came along and reagan came along it was obviously a, a the world had turned a corner which i didn't want to turn but um didn't have much choice but to be satirist you know um I think my work, I never joined Red Wedge or any of that more direct political stuff. I wasn't the proclaimer as I wasn't um, Paul Weller, but I was, um, I was interested in subverting in more subtle ways. And, and those would be things like uh, Georges Bataille's ideas about transgression or even using Freud as a kind of dynamite, um, using sex as a kind of uh, political dynamite. Yes. And, you know, because obviously, you know, your sort of catalogue of work, you know, I mean, do you sort of relate slightly to people, again, mentioning Lawrence, but also people like Marky Smith, who just had this kind of like output and work ethic that was going to be, you know, almost one album a year with a tour? I mean, because again, because you really had no time off. Yeah, I don't tour very much. I don't play many concerts. So that's fairly exhausting. I, I think if I was touring as much as The Fall did, I, I, would, um, I, I wouldn't have much energy for anything else. But uh, making one record a year is really not difficult. In fact, the difficult thing for me is only making one. I could easily make two or three albums a year. Yes. And also, I mean, 
did you find, because obviously with people, you know, when Marky Smith died and then everyone had to sort of look at their sort of um, their history with the fall, which is often, you know, for a fan, I suppose most fans are quite fickle. They have a few years and then they drop the artist and then they might pick them up and then they die and they go, oh, my God, I need to go back and uh, rediscover all their work and feel a bit embarrassed when you realise that you sort of ignored your, you know, like closest friend being, you know, the band or artist. So do you find with your fans that they sort of go with you all the time or do you find they drop in and out? Oh, they definitely drop in and out. And that's fine. That's absolutely natural. I mean, you mentioned the fall. I mean, Marky Smith was a, a hugely important figure for me. And, and actually, I wrote a, a novel in which he appears as a kind of prophet figure. Um, my last novel, Pop Up, um, is actually kind of centered around Marky Smith and his world. And But, you know, even with the fall, I didn't buy all their albums. I, I bought maybe eight or ten of their albums and uh, especially their early, you know, Slates, I think, is my favorite fall record. I think what, what I love about Marky Smith's universe is just the thrownness, the stubbornness of, of his kind of vision and the oddness of it. But also the fact that he was absolutely convinced that the world needed it and, and that uh, if he didn't supply it, nobody else was going to have that kind of weird psychedelic vision that he had and and also that he was untutored he's like the poet laureate of kind of primitivism um kind of brilliant i mean i i spent when i was writing this novel last year two two years ago um i spent ages on a uh, an annotated fall website where they actually had gone into every single song uh, the fall produced and people analyzing the songs, tracing the references. And there's just so much in so much popular culture, which I don't know about the twilight zone and stuff like that in fall songs, that, that uh, it was an amazing index to the whole popular culture of the second half of the 20th century. Yes. And just cause, cause actually that bit when you were just talking about the, the, the demise and the, the sort of the end of the NME and you were talking about that sort of um, diagram by Pete Frame. Can you just kind of just talk about that again? Because actually that bit was a bit when the internet connection had just gone. But obviously the NME and you probably weren't bedfellows, were you? Yeah, the, the, when it was announced that the enemy had ceased its print publication, uh, somebody, I think it was uh, Stuart McConey actually published this uh, fake Pete Frame uh, rock tapestry family tree thing uh, with Momus down the right hand side uh, Momus in seven different incarnations in which I collaborated with nobody because obviously family trees are about you know hybrid interminglings and collaborations and things and Momus at, at each stage of Momus development no new members no changes um, basically me just uh, fretting about being a a misunderstood genius on the fringes of things, except at one moment when uh, Joe Strummer tries to collaborate and I tell him to piss off, and um, which never never happened, I hasten to add. But um, yeah, there is that sense that um, that I was always on the margins, but I was on the margins of so many successive scenes and I never actually died with any particular scene. I mean, you mentioned the five years, most artists saying that their careers fizzled after five years. I think that that did happen with me too. I mean, you, it's very hard to sustain interest after five albums in one territory. But what I did was I moved from, I had my five years of semi-acclaim, critical acclaim in Britain with an almost hit single in the form of The Hairstyle of the Devil, 1989. Then I kind of moved on to living in France and making pop music inspired by French pop music and a little bit by Beck and Tricky as well. And, and then um, having hits in Japan. So I moved on really to Japan. And then after Japan, I moved on to America and really trying to crack the college market in America for about five years. Each case, it was like I had five years of good 
attention from Japan and then they got a bit bored um, and the Americans got bored after five years. So I basically have had to find new new countries. I've sort of run out of places to to uh, to um, try and intrigue. Uh, I guess it's Port- it's Portugal now. It's Portugal. <laughs> have you ever found, because obviously having such a prolific background and sort of writing so much stuff and your, you know, a lot of your sentiments and lyrics, have you ever found some of your fans incredibly weird and a bit scary? Well, not weird in, in and of themselves, but for instance, there's a, there's a guy who sells medical equipment who's a huge Mama's fan and lives in Southend-on-Sea, and, and he, he, he's such a fan that he, he brought me down at, at a huge expense to himself to play at one of his birthday parties, and he was the only person in the room. I mean, as soon as I started playing, all his friends left the room, you know, and there's just him and like two little boys who were throwing stuff at the stage. So, I, you know, I do wonder how my work fits into certain kinds of life. Um, it's always fascinating how people use you and how they perceive you. Um, I can understand why I'm not more successful than I am. And I've come, I've made my peace with that. I actually think that I, I supply something which the world doesn't necessarily know it needs, but maybe it does need. <laughs> yes. I think that's almost the mantra to Apple computers, isn't it? Or App- Apple gear, you know, you don't know you need it until they've designed and created it. And then you go, God, I need that thing. I didn't know that. So obviously, you know, you have a lot more in common with Apple probably. Well, they were, they also went from being marginal uh, to being the world's largest company, which is kind of amazing. I don't think that's going to happen to me. <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting because obviously one day somebody from that BBC Four world is going to make that documentary because, you know, on Momus, because frankly, you know, there aren't that many artists. And I know I keep mentioning, well, we mentioned the two before. I mean, David Bowie was a bit similar because I, I remember when he died, sort of having an awful lot of time thinking about him and, you know going to see the exhibition and that play Lazarus and stuff like that and realizing that his his 70s were like something like 10 albums plus relocating plus touring plus producing other people's work like Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and and so suddenly some you know we take people for granted until they die and then when they're dead we go oh my god perhaps we should you know we should have valued them a bit more you know because because the internet now is kind of a wash with people reminiscing about the NME which is like yeah but that was 30 years ago when it was at its kind of peak or glory days um, which is kind of weird. So, so I would imagine, you know, you're, you're, somebody will write the Momus book. Well, it's an interesting contrast with Lawrence because Lawrence has changed his uh, brand name so many times. He was Felt, now he's Lawrence, he's, uh, he was Go-Kart Mozart, he was Denim. You know, he kept changing the name, whereas I've always kept the name Momus. And uh, even when I make books now, I put them out under the name Momus. So I've sort of centered it's not even a particularly good word and and now on the internet there are lots of people on twitter popping up every every few days with using the name momus but um and sometimes they're the most awful right-wing trolls as well they tend to be really terrible people but uh or djs in in new york called momus but uh yeah yeah, i I would absolutely welcome people entering into that world because i do think it is kind of like a marquis smith type world uh it's a bit more bourgeois and articulate, obviously, than Marquis. Well, not more articulate, but it's more bourgeois. It's more kind of bon, bon élève, as they say in France. See, Marquis Smith wouldn't say, je suis bon élève. Uh, he, he probably didn't have any other languages. But uh, that, that's part of the, the pride of being working class. And I think that's, that's fascinating for people like me who are, who are very bourgeois, you know, sort of nice, educated Edinburgh lad, to, to find someone like Marquis Smith, who's almost, almost like a William Blake of our times you know i really think of him as william blake 
Yes, we all do. Well, sometimes. Anyway, that is going to be the last part of my interview with Momus. A big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. And um, as I said somewhere in that last, I don't know, 30 minutes, um, there was a bit of problem with the connection. And uh, I'm sorry that it got a bit sort of hit and miss and uh, distorted. But hopefully you heard enough to um, think I must go back and rediscover more of his work. And like I said, Cherry Red Record Label has been putting out quite a lot of his stuff, has repackaged, reissued, and I know he had an album out last year. So go and just check it out, buy the lot and um, fill your boots. Anyway, thank you for listening. A huge thank you to Momus again. I'm going to leave you with one more track. This is Ventriloquist. Ventriloquist and Dolls. This was taken from the album Hippopotamomus. Get it? I do too. Anyway, um, do get in touch if you want and um, it will be delightful. But I'll leave you with this. Have a great week. In silence, traffic lights are changing in the distance. The radio plays proud. Opening the door of his fiesta, the ventriloquist steps out into the air beneath the stars. Wraps his hands against the frost and tucks the dummy in her case beneath his arm. Ventriloquists and dolls. And their dummies moving in parallel worlds like wolves and little girls, gangsters and their moles, ventriloquists and dolls. And slowly on his painful wooden leg, the ventriloquist pumps up the wooden steps towards his flat. A single room filled up with mannequins And dangling from the beams on tangled strings A marionette And his carving's been so painstaking It looks for all the world like flesh and blood Realistic to a fault His dolls are portraits carved in wood Of little girls Ventriloquists and dolls Tailors and their dummies Takes off his pants, unscrews his wooden leg And though his face is frighteningly ugly And he takes her by surprise and very fast The doll he crashes under him Immediately agrees to everything he asks Venture requests and dolls Tailors and their dummies 
Gangsters in their mouths Ventriloquists and dogs 